you, Naomi. Uh, well, this morning we're, we are indeed looking at Isaiah chapter 38, and if you have a Bible with you, you might find it useful to keep it open um, at that point. Isaiah chapter 38. Last week, um, we looked at chapters 36 and 37, the siege of Jerusalem and how it happened and how it ended. Well, the year is 701 BC, and King Hezekiah has been the king of Judah in Jerusalem for about 14 years. Hezekiah is about 39 years of age. And our text today begins with the words, in those days. Verse 1, in those days, in the days of the siege, in those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. Poor guy! I mean, we might naturally feel, having gone to this place in the Bible by way of chapters 36 and 37, we might perhaps feel a little bit of compassion for poor old Hezekiah. I mean, doesn't he have enough to deal with already? And now this, what lousy timing. Um, if you do have your Bible open, you might see that the very last verses in our text today, verses 21 and 22, they sit at the end of the scene almost like footnotes, telling us details that didn't need to interrupt the flow of the narrative, but yet nevertheless we should know. Hezekiah, he has some kind of boil, an abscess, a localized infection in the skin somewhere that's gotten out of control and has led to systemic illness, an illness that is now going to kill him. And it was going to kill him. Obviously bedridden, weakened and in great pain, Isaiah had to go to see him rather than the other way around. Verse 2, the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. Uh, that message uh, requires little explanation. It's plain enough. But if you'll humor me for a moment, I'd like to take a minute to point out the obvious. Um, this illness is going to kill him. That's God's decision. Um, Hezekiah is going to die in his immediate future, in his present, so to speak, with only so much advance notice as to allow him to put his house in order. That phrase, put your house in order, will mean for Hezekiah making a decision about succession. That is to say, he needs to say who is going to be king next after he dies. That's his last piece of business. And we might reasonably assume that, actually we don't know, but perhaps it's, we can assume that perhaps Hezekiah is single and childless at this point in, life, in his life, although the reasons for this cannot now be known. But what we do know is that when Hezekiah did actually eventually die, 15 years into the future from the point of view of our text today, 12-year-old Manasseh would become king. 
so Hezekiah's son and heir is three years away from being born. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept, weeping greatly. Um, the, the focus of this chapter will be on Hezekiah's prayer life. Uh, and we should note that. It could have been on the illness. It could have been on the prophetic ministry of Isaiah. It could have been on the miracle. But it's not. We are being shown Hezekiah at prayer. Hezekiah's prayer here is very short and very to the point. We, we might have heard put your house in order as a call to personal repentance. Hezekiah didn't hear it that way. His short prayer is an unrestrained outpouring of his heart, of his distress to his God, bawling his eyes out, weeping, weeping greatly. Bawling his eyes out. And his prayer is a petition, please act. But the prayer is also intercession. Hezekiah interceding for himself, on behalf of himself, as uncomfortable as perhaps we might be with that. But whether we are comfortable with this prayer or not, Hezekiah is calling God to covenant faithfulness and pointing to his own blameless conduct as evidence of his own covenant faithfulness. I've kept my part of the deal, is what Hezekiah is saying. So I'm begging you with tears to keep to your side of the bargain and save me. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, verse 5. Go and tell Hezekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David, says. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city. This is the Lord's sign to you that the Lord will do what he has promised. I will make the shadow cast by the sun go back the ten steps it has gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. So the sunlight went back the ten steps it had gone down. Well, Hezekiah's prayer. It's, it's vindicated. It's authenticated. It's approved of. God meets it fully. It meets with God's fullest approval. I will be faithful to my covenant is part of the answer. And God uses covenant language, referring to David. David and establishes that he will act faithfully with respect to the covenant that he made with Hezekiah's ancestor, King David, a covenant with the sons of David never to abandon nor forsake them. Hezekiah will be delivered, both of his illness and of the Assyrians. And an apparently unrequested miracle the shadow cast by the sun moving backwards up the staircase of Ahaz, vouchsafes the word of the Lord. 
that, that, that this miracle is apparently unsolicited adds greatly to the sense that Hezekiah is fully justified in how he prayed. Although, in fact, we, we know that Hezekiah had actually requested a sign, um, see the end of the chapter, as well as actually we know that there'd been a discussion with the prophet Isaiah as to whether the sign would involve the sun going forwards or going backwards. And you can see 2 Kings chapter 20 for the details of that discussion. Anyway, Hezekiah is miraculously healed. The healing is from God. We might note, though, that as with so many healing miracles, and as with many of Jesus' healing miracles, it's a miracle wrought by means. That the healing was from God, but Isaiah participated in the cure, ordering the preparation and application of a poultice of figs. But our attention is not being drawn to the miracle but rather to Hezekiah's prayer life. The focus of this chapter, particularly in contrast to the other two places in the Bible where this incident is recorded, the focus of this chapter is on Hezekiah's second prayer. That first prayer was short, a spontaneous outburst, a disinhibited outpouring of Hezekiah's heart. This second prayer is also an unrestrained outpouring of Hezekiah's heart to the Lord. But in contrast, this isn't spontaneous. No, actually, it's carefully crafted. It's a polished composition, probably requiring multiple drafts and redrafts. It's presented to us as a beautiful piece of Hebrew poetry. This is a work of art. And so we can confidently call this composition a psalm. As a psalm, it is a prayer in the form of poetry. As a psalm, it is a prayer in which the prayer speaks to himself, speaks to those around him, and speaks to God. And as a psalm, it is reasonably clear that this poem was actually lyrics to music. It was intended to be put to music, um, as in Psalm 40, for the director of music, Uh, of David, a psalm. So here, verse 20, the Lord will save me and we will sing with stringed instruments all the days of our lives in the temple of the Lord. The the language of the prayer also is very, very psalm-like. Endless comparisons could be made between this prayer and the psalms, but the similarities strongly suggest that Hezekiah, like so many in the Bible, learnt to pray by praying the Psalms, the schoolhouse of prayer. And there are any number of things about this psalm that we would uh, do well to think about. I've picked um, a few things, just a few things, from this prayer, from this psalm. Perhaps the first thing to see clearly is that Hezekiah, in common with most of the Old Testament saints, anticipates death, as a total and irreversible separation, both from human beings and from God. The Old Testament itself has a better hope. It hints at that hope, which the New Testament reveals. But the understanding of the saints before Christ was that death 
ushered everyone into the grave, into the place that the Hebrews called Sheol, a dark and shadowy place of rest and sleep and slumber, the common destiny of everyone, great or small, good or bad, righteous or wicked, they all went to the one place, Sheol, a place of a kind of shadowy existence, semi-conscious perhaps, a place of, though, of no meaning and no activity. Um, irrelevancy. Null void. To be dead in Hebrew thought was to be cut off from the land of the living, the place where things happen. To be dead in Hebrew thought was to be cut off from God, the God of the living. Death was putrid and rotten, decomposition and endlessly being fallen apart, being consumed by death, eaten by it. Aloneness and emptiness. God has nothing to do with those horrible things. No, 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 he is, he is life and the source of life, power and the source of power. He is community and the source of community. He is love, fellowship, activity, diversity, beauty. He has nothing to do with death. That's anti-God. Um, I said, verse 10, in the prime of my life, must I go through the gates of death and be robbed of the rest of my years? I said, I will not again see the Lord himself in the land of the living. No longer will I look on my fellow man or be with those who now dwell in this world. And again in verses 17 and following, in your love you kept me from the pit of destruction. You have put all my sins behind your back. For the grave cannot praise you. Death cannot sing your praise. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, they praise you, as I am doing today. Death, then, is uh, being a meaningless and purposeless nothing in eternal nowhere. But God saved Hezekiah from dying. And the psalm, in essence, is therefore a hymn of thanksgiving. Verse 16, Lord, by such things people live, and my spirit finds life in them too. You restored me to health, and you let me live. Thirdly, although Hezekiah pleaded with God for mercy on the basis of his own covenantal faithfulness, He knows nevertheless that being saved by God is an experience of grace, sheer grace. In other words, an unexpected, undeserved, unearned, unmerited kindness. And it is grace that makes life so wonderful. You have put all my sins behind your back. A, A fourth thing for us to chew over is Hezekiah's conviction that it was ultimately for his benefit that he suffered, that it was in God's hands an evil thing turned good, a curse transformed into a blessing for him as he trusted God. Verses 15 and 17, I will walk humbly all my years because of this anguish of my soul. Surely it was for my benefit 
that I suffered such anguish. And uh, we, we can um, imagine Hezekiah standing up in church the following weekend and giving his testimony. Oh, it was, it was really awful at the time. But I'm, I'm actually, you know, all the good things that God wrought in this for me, I'm actually really glad it happened. That's Hezekiah's testimony. This is the really strange thing about this hymn of thanksgiving. Is the shock of it is that he thanks God not just for healing him, he thanks God for the illness. That's, that's something shocking. Although never in doubt as to the power of God, he's now witnessed for himself the sovereignty of the Lord over sickness and death, experienced afresh grace and forgiveness, and grown in his understanding of the importance of walking through this life with gratitude and humility. So then, how, uh, that's a little bit about the text. How might we make connections with this text in terms of walking our daily lives? Well, let's start uh, by thanking and praising Jesus, God's Son. He, he, he was cut off in the midst of his years. In the prime of life, he did have to go through the gates of death. He was robbed of the rest of his years. And he pleaded with his father in the garden for another way, but unlike Hezekiah, got no change of plan. As a 30-something-year-old, Jesus died on the cross and ascended to the dead and was raised from the dead on the third day. Jesus, son of Hezekiah, son of David, he did that for us to destroy the power of what Hezekiah so deeply feared. Death, not as a momentary experience, a horrible thing happening to you in a blink, but death as being irreversibly cut off from God and from everything good. So St. Paul could say to his friends in, in Philippi, for me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If, if I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what should I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Uh, we really, really, really misunderstand Paul if we think he's just being uh, blasé um, uh, about death, um, just being chipper or stiff upper lipperish about uh, death. He's not being blasé. The thought of death, the fear of death, the realization of one's own mortality naturally causes a deep and profound anguish in the human heart as Scripture recognizes and as both Jesus and Paul experienced and as many of us have likewise experienced. It's not nice. We go, no. Yet and nevertheless, if we put our faith in Jesus, we need not fear death in the same way that Hezekiah did, nor mourn like the rest of humanity, as Paul says elsewhere, those who have no hope. God's promise is this, that when we repent and turn to Christ, 
confessing our sins, we have forgiveness of sins, like Hezekiah. We have forgiveness, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the promise of eternal life. So then, if you know anyone uh, um, who's in heaven, you can rejoice that they're not dead. They're alive. There are no dead people in heaven. God doesn't hang out with dead people. They're alive. That's what the cross was about. To be with God, to be with Christ, is to be alive and fully alive. The second thing we, we might consider in response to all of this is, again, how Hezekiah understands his suffering to be refining. Not an easy thing to think about, not an easy thing to talk about. Last week we began our talk uh, with a quotation from the book of James, from the start of the book of James. I have regularly considered the opening to the book of James to be some of the most pastorally insensitive words in the entire Bible. It is almost certain in my own mind that James wishes to be deliberately provocative. Nevertheless, he is deadly serious. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. It, it's... It's, it's all so shockingly counterintuitive uh, that we should rejoice at the arrival of some new, fresh evil. Uh, we, 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 all, we all push back at, at that thought, be that fresh evil, whether it's pandemic or, or persecution, whether it's diagnosis or disaster. Rejoice? And it is a hard thing to get the balance right, isn't it? Suffering is awful because it hurts. Evil is always evil. Understanding that God has the power to bring good out of evil, to redeem curses into blessings, does not mean that those evil things weren't actually evil. They were evil, not good things in disguise. But the fundamental conviction, the fundamental conviction of the people of God from the earliest of times has been the full, perfect, uncompromised sovereignty of God over all evil, chaos, randomness, and destruction. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Jesus Christ is Lord let the earth tremble. Um, I believe, um, currently, I, I, I believe that, that, that for myself, whenever awful things come my way, uh, when, whenever evil arrives uh, on my doorstep, I do well to say um, thank you to God for that evil thing, even though it is an awful thing. In one way or another, it is something that's come from God. The second thing I try to say quickly and early, beating Hezekiah to his conclusions, is I trust you. Thank you, and I trust you. 
thank you and I trust you, I think are two of the big guns when it comes to spiritual warfare and are, I believe, transformative acts of faith. Uh, Thank you and I trust you, I will start to see God move in power. So then we can always, with Hezekiah, we can intercede for others and for ourselves, asking God to save us from trials and from sufferings. We have that in the prayer that our Lord Jesus Christ taught us. Deliver us from evil. Save us from trials. That's a good thing to do. But we can also, with James, trust that as we keep trusting God, we will most assuredly arrive at some time, at some time, maybe a very long time into the future, but at some day, at some time, near or far, on some day, we will be able to say, able to pray with Hezekiah, surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. Thank you, God, for letting that evil thing happen to me. I understand now what you were doing. You were in charge. (laughs) One last thing to consider. Um, Something important, if we're going to make sense of next week's passage, um, uh, something important, if we're going to make sense of actually what I've just said, uh, something important that I've actually kept for last is um, that Hezekiah discovers something incredibly important about God. You can always negotiate. Uh, Whilst Hezekiah's prayer life is the focus of today's passage, and there's been shocks along the way, the scandal of this passage is that God changes his mind. In other places in the Bible, God says that he never changes his mind. Numbers 23, God is not a human being that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? 1 Samuel 15, he who is the glory of Israel does not lie nor change his mind. For he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Um, In both contexts, a, a prophet is affirming that God keeps his promises, that he is always true to his word. But actually that also chimes chimes in with ancient understandings of kingship. Uh, in many ancient Near Eastern cultures, and particularly, I think, in Egyptian culture, and certainly in Babylonian thought, kings did not and could not change their minds. You know, like, if you, if you were the boss, you never changed your mind. Um, a king's decision, as soon as he said it, it was law, and the law could never be repealed. The change of mind, then, in our passage today, is scandalous. Because God clearly changes his mind. The the word of the Lord in verse 1 is clear, specific, and unconditional. There's no wiggle room in this. I think I mean wiggle room. Um, The change of mind, verse 4 ushers in, is a new decision. And this God changes his mind. This, this, This sparks questions for us, doesn't it? 
Um, did God only appear to change his mind? Um, is, is God unsure of his own mind? Does God sometimes get things wrong? What does it mean that God changes his mind? As difficult as some of these questions are, there is nevertheless a long and glorious prophetic tradition of prophets getting God to change his mind. God says, I'm going to do such and such. The prophet says, oh, please don't. And God says, okay then. Abraham enters into protracted negotiations, negotiations with the Lord over the fate of his nephew Lot. Moses stands in the breach time and time again in the wilderness wanderings and saves Israel from the condemning judgment of God through his prayers of intercession. What these incidents all have in common is that the prophet appeals to the compassion and mercy of God. Um, God's wrath, God's wrath is fierce, righteous, holy, pure, zealous, hatred of evil and anger against sinners. God's wrath is real. And indeed, every human being urgently needs to know about it. And even then, more so, that the cross saves us from the wrath of God. For Jesus bore it on himself. But the wrath of God, the wrath of God, that that pure, holy, righteous indignation and hatred of evil, uh, his anger against sinners, it is perhaps in some ways almost a secondary characteristic of God. Perhaps not something most central to his being. And I say that because unlike his mercy, his love and his compassion, the wrath of God is not eternal. It is contingent. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. But the love of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God does not have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It is eternal. Um, As it says so many places in Scripture, um, 26 times in Psalm 136, his love endures forever. So then, for, for example, um, whenever you hear a human being covenant with themselves to maintain their anger forever, you know you're dealing with something profoundly ungodlike and therefore satanic. Um, it's, we are not acting like God when we choose to be angry forever. Um, it also means, on the other hand, that if ever we, we had as a theological exercise to make some kind of comparison between the wrath of God and the mercy of God, then we would have to inescapably come to the same conclusion as St. James, who writes, mercy triumphs over judgment. And understanding this is ultimately essential for living with a holy God. We can always negotiate we can always ask for a better deal. Whilst God knows the end from the beginning, nevertheless, the future is not written in stone. We can always negotiate, plead for mercy and compassion. 
Indeed, knowing this, we now understand that if ever we were to fail to negotiate, if ever we were to go silent on God, that would be a profound failure of leadership. And perhaps we might bear that thought in mind as we come to chapter 39 next week. Well, in chapters 36, 37, and 38 of the book of Isaiah, poor Hezekiah, has had to deal with at least three existential crises. The possible destruction of Jerusalem and the people of God. The possible destruction of of his house and line, the house and line of David, the house and line of the Messiah. The possible destruction of his own body and soul in Sheol through an infectious disease. These are not easy things to deal with, particularly when they all happen at once. I mean, I'm guessing, I haven't, you know, I'd imagine they're not easy. That's tough when they all come together, isn't it? But Hezekiah has come through these trials. Indeed, come through these trials shining. A man of prayer who trusts what God has to say. And in response to such things, God's saving power, his love and faithfulness, his grace and mercy, it's been revealed to an even greater extent. Well, next week we see the conclusion to the story of Hezekiah as recorded for us by Isaiah the prophet. And may the grace and mercy of God our Saviour and our Lord Jesus Christ protect you and keep you safe from all harm. Amen. Amen.